0: grateful that you're here tonight, starting to finally feel like summer almost. Kids are out of school, crowding the pools and parks and beaches, making Starbucks a madhouse right now. But I'd like to begin tonight with a a memory, a memory from some years ago. Memory that I've recorded into words. It goes like this No one's supposed to mess with it. It's morbidly wrong. It's supposed to be permanent, you know the tomb, the grave, the final resting place. But each grave I pass looks more disheveled than the last like a basket of laundry, not neatly folded, but thrashed, wadded up, and strewn about the bedroom. Large, smooth stones, long planks of concrete or marble, carelessly, no, blatantly, snapped and tossed aside. They once stood tall and proud, perfectly measurable, 90-degree angles. Now they slouch, obtuse, acute, We're simply in rubble. Their inscriptions tell a terrible tale. The dates of birth span some 50 years or so, but after the dash, it all tells a terrible tale over and over and over again. 1941, 1943, 1943, 1945, 1945. 1944, 1944, 1944. 1945, 1945, 1945. Here in this Jewish cemetery in Eastern Europe, I can count on one hand all of the post-1945 dates of death. The government had handed over their Jews, their taxpayers, their citizens, their neighbors and teachers and bakers to the Nazi Third Reich. And all... But what I could count on one hand never made it to 1946. As the raindrops splatter dime-sized circles on the large smooth stones, on the tombs, the graves, the final resting places of the Jews remembered enough, respected and honored enough to be buried here, it's impossible not to taste the bile seeping up my throat. It's impossible not to feel the concoction of anger and sadness brewing inside. It's impossible not to be struck by the bottomless remorse for those who not only lost their lives, but lost even more in death with their tombs, their graves, their final resting places desecrated. It's just morbidly wrong. I think that's what Mary Magdalene must have felt, that taste of bile seeping up her throat, the concoction of anger and sadness brewing inside, that bottomless remorse. It's what Mary Magdalene must have felt when she saw the Sunday morning tomb. It must have looked desecrated. But tonight, as we continue with our verse-by-verse study through the Gospel of John, we're going to look at the shock and awe and wonder of the empty tomb of Jesus and what it means for our lives. So if you're able to stand, I invite you to stand as we'll read from the first verse of our passage tonight in John chapter 20, verse 1. Early on Sunday morning... While it was still dark, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb and found that the stone had been rolled away from the entrance. God, tonight as we go through this passage, I pray that you would speak to us about the shock and awe and wonder of the resurrection and what that means for our lives. I pray, God, there could be so many different things swirling in our minds and on our plates tonight. The burdens might be heavy. The chaos and confusion and hardship might just be bearing down too heavy. And I pray, Lord, that you would be with them, that you would be with each of us in whatever situation we might find ourselves tonight but allow us to just focus on your word and you and loving you and loving the people around us. I pray, Lord, that what we hear tonight would be from you, that you would speak to us each individually. That is our prayer. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. And go ahead, if you need a Bible, there should be some Bibles in the back or you could follow along on the screen or on your phone. Maybe you have a Bible app you can follow along with. But we're going to begin with verse 1, the first part of it, verse 1a. It says this, early on Sunday morning, while it was still dark... Mary Magdalene. So not the mother of Jesus, not a prostitute as the medieval period and artwork of the Renaissance might portray, but the Galilean woman who in Luke chapter 8 experiences seven demons cast out from her by the exorcism that Jesus performs. But what's interesting in the gospel of John is that Mary Magdalene isn't mentioned until Jesus is actually on the cross in chapter 19, verse 25. But she's clearly a direct witness to the death and burial and resurrection of Jesus. She's a disciple, the first disciple actually in the gospel of John, who proclaims the good news of Easter in chapter 20, verse 18. She says, I have seen the Lord. But we're not there quite yet. Verse one says, early on Sunday morning, while it was still dark, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb and found that the stone had been rolled away from the entrance. As best as archaeologists have been able to determine from uh, excavations of the first century world. There's a a slanted groove that led down to a a low entrance, and a large disc-shaped stone was rolled down this groove and lodged into place across the door. Then this smaller stone would be used to put in place to secure the disc. It'd be easy to roll this big disc down the groove, but it would take several people to roll it back up and open up Tomb. So it begs the question, then, here we have this open tomb. Who opened it? Grave robbers here to desecrate the body? Disciples here to, you know, keep the story going? Well, let's see. Verse 2 says, She, that is Mary Magdalene, ran and found Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved. She said, They have taken the Lord's body out of the tomb and we don't know where they have put him. We're going to begin with some table talk tonight. I want you to talk to the people around you and carefully read John chapter 20 verses 1 through 4 and answer the three following questions. Number one, who is the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved? Number two, is Mary alone at the tomb? Why or why not? And number three, Did the disciples open the tomb? Why or why not? Ready? Go. All right, go ahead and finish the thought and then we'll bring it back together here. We're going to go through each of these questions and we're going to explore them as the text brings it up. So first question we're going to explore is who is this other disciple? Who is this other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved? The traditional view is that the other disciple whom Jesus loved, also known as the beloved disciple, is the author of the Gospel of John and or John, son of Zebedee. But we could make arguments for other individuals as well, perhaps Lazarus, but kind of, to be honest, the weight is... those arguments doesn't really hold. The title Beloved Disciple actually only appears in the Gospel of John, and it first shows up in John chapter 13 at the Last Supper, when the passion of Jesus essentially begins. The Beloved Disciple is only connected to the events of Jesus' passion, is always identified by relationship to Jesus and never by name, and only has one role— To embody the love and closeness with Jesus, which is ultimately the goal of discipleship in the Gospel of John. So who is this other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved? My best guess is John, son of Zebedee. So we could look at verse 2 again. Mary Magdalene ran and found Simon Peter and... John, the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved, she said they have taken the Lord's body out of the tomb and we don't know where they have put him. Now this brings us to the second question. Is Mary alone at the tomb? You'll find it in a number of commentaries and books and studies on the gospel of John that Mary Magdalene came to the tomb alone on Sunday morning. But did she? Well, not according to Mary in verse 2. It says, She ran and found Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved. She said, They have taken the Lord's body out of the tomb, and we don't know where they have put him. So that tells me Mary's either got uh, some sort of multiple personality disorder or that she wasn't alone. Okay, maybe she's just talking about other folks that, you know, she was telling on the way when she was going to tell Peter and John. But it clearly couldn't have been Peter and John. Or John or any of the disciples who had been with her. Could it have been maybe the other Marys? I mean, the New Testament is like littered with Marys and Johns. Like, can we just like use a different name to get some of these people straight? But there's Jesus' mother Mary and his aunt Mary, the wife of Clopas. Maybe, but they aren't named. So we don't know with certainty who the we refers to. But what it does is it actually agrees with what's called the synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. It agrees with the reality that Mary is not alone because in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, there's not just a single woman by herself going to the tomb. But this also does something something different. By showing this focus on Mary, it presents the author's exclusive attention to Mary and her actions And her words, it means they're important. So pay close attention. So Mary Magdalene ran and found Simon Peter and John, the other disciples, the one whom Jesus loved. She said, they have taken the Lord's body out of the tomb and we, that is Mary and company, don't know where they have put him. And this brings us to the third question. Did the disciples open the tomb? Uh, no, <laughs> most certainly no, based on their behavior in the next few verses. Verses three through four, Peter and the other disciples started out for the tomb. They were both running, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. Unless they're the biggest con artists of the ancient world, these guys didn't open the tomb. Their actions and behavior that follows betrays that suspicion they sprint to the tomb and what they do when they arrive clearly shows that these dudes didn't open it verse 5 says he that is the beloved disciple or john stooped and looked in in most cases these tombs would have an entrance of less than three feet high so an adult like john would have to bend down and practically crawl inside it says so john stooped and looked in and saw the linen wrappings lying there but he didn't go in cuz well you know it's kind of kind of creepy you know he sees the linen wrappings lying there doesn't say where but probably where the body had been seems likely but where would that be? Probably a, a niche carved into the wall where the body would have been laid lengthwise. You have it on the screen where you can see, or perhaps maybe a, a low shelf like a, a bench running along one side of the tomb, or or three side of the tombs, kind of like a, a three sides of the tomb, kind of like a U shape facing the entrance. And so the grave clothes would have been lying perhaps there on the shelf. Or on the niche where the body had been. Sounds kind of morbid, but a quick word about grave clothes. The evidence of linen wrappings lying there suggests that Jesus' body had not been stolen because it's implausible. It doesn't make sense that grave robbers would have unwound the body from its wrappings. Why would anybody bother to unwrap it before carrying it off? It's implausible and unsanitary too. So John's there first. He, he's stooping, he's looking, but he didn't go in because, well, it's, you know, it's kind of creepy, you know. But verses 6 through 7 says, Then Simon Peter arrived and went inside. He also noticed the linen wrappings lying there, just like John had. But check it out. He notices something different as well. He also noticed the linen wrappings lying there while the cloth that had covered Jesus' head, or the Greek is uh, sudarion, was folded up and lying apart from the other wrappings. Let's talk about grave clothes part two. This sudarion was a a small towel used to wipe off perspiration, kind of like a a handkerchief or a a napkin of sorts. But for use when it came to grave clothes, it may have been a, a separate cloth to wrap the face or to wrap under the chin and tie it above the head to prevent the mouth of the corpse from falling open. And it's this sudarion, this cloth that had covered Jesus' head, that gets folded up and set apart. Okay, so what's the big deal about this? I'll give you two reasons why. Two reasons why it's a big deal. We have first the stolen body theory busted and Lazarus and more left behind. First up, the stolen body theory busted. The cloth that covered Jesus' head folded up and then set apart. It puts a huge dent in this stolen body theory. Because even if grave robbers would have unwrapped the body, maybe in search of gems or jewels or valuables still worn by the corpse, why would they take the time to wrap up the headcloth? It doesn't make sense. Now, before getting into the second reason why it's a big deal that this head cloth gets folded up and set apart, I want to do another table exercise. This time I want you to read John eleven thirty 30 through 44 aloud, and then compare John 11, verses 40 through 44, to John 20 through 6 and 7. What's similar, what's different, and what's the big deal? Ready to go. All right, well, let's bring it back together. Go ahead and finish the thought and close it up. We're going to talk about Lazarus and more left behind. As Lazarus exits the tomb in John chapter 11, which you read about, his grave clothes, they get described in great Detailed. He's got the same sudarian. If we were reading in the Greek text, in the original text, we would come across this same word, sudarian, the same word for the same cloth that had covered Jesus's head. It occurs in both 1144 and 20, verse 7. Lazarus emerges from the tomb, kind of like a, a mummy, wrapped in his grave clothes with the sudarian, the, the headcloth wrapped around his noggin. But get this Lazarus depended on Jesus' command to free himself from the wrappings. But after Jesus emerges from his tomb, his grave clothes remain behind, left there with the sudarian headcloth folded up nice and neat. It brings a theological resolution to Mary's misunderstanding. The tomb is not desecrated. No one's taken Jesus away, for he has left death behind. The tomb, the grave, the final resting place is left behind with all of its wrappings and all of its ties and bindings. And isn't that the truth of our lives? That though our final resting places might wind up to be desecrated or weathered by the ages or faded and forgotten, that tomb, that grave, that final resting resting place is hardly a final resting place at all because of the work of Jesus death is left behind with all of its wrappings all of its ties and all of its bindings we got time for one more table talk tonight and I think this is probably the most applicable thing I mean some of you guys were like man there's a lot of scripture we got to read tonight But, you know, it's the word of God and it penetrates like a double-edged sword and cuts through our nonsense and tells us who we are and what we need to really be focused on. But this one, if we have faith because of the work of Jesus, if we have faith that death is beaten, how should we live? What should our everyday lives look like and what changes might we need to make? Go ahead. so if you uh if you said that you know I, I got faith in Jesus, death is beaten it's so easy for us to uh to got, kind of give a uh, just a flippant answer that, yeah well you know I should be loving, I should be caring, I should not fear, or anything like that, but like what what is really going on underneath there could be a lot of ways we answer this like. What should our everyday lives look like? Yeah, it should look like a fearless disciple, follower of Jesus. But in reality, I feel like I'm dealing with fear and timidity and anxiety, not to mention failure. Well, if that's you, keep coming back. (laughs) Because there's a lot of people like that. A lot of us go through that same old routine where we come here and we're like, yeah, man, I'm fired up. I'm pumped up. And then it's in the parking lot back to reality picking up my failure, picking up my anxiety and fear, and then it's just like, what happened on Sunday? What happened on Wednesday? Where did I lose it? But you know what? Like, keep coming back and ask for help. One of the greatest weaknesses that we have is not asking for help. Because yeah, Jesus said, yeah, go through it by yourself, right? Like, Forget about the church, like we're lone wolves, right? But why do we do that? Is that like the American thing? Like you can do it. No. Don't try and pull yourself up by your bootstraps. Lean on each other, right? That's what these two guys do. One's one's at the tomb and he's afraid to go in. But then it says, verse eight, then the disciple had reached the tomb first, also went in. So John now musters up the courage and he saw the repetition of sight in this passage is unmistakable. If we were to go back to verse one, we would see all over the place. Here, John sees, just like everyone in this passage who's seen and noticed and looked and found, here he saw, but he sees something different. He saw and believed. The Greek is pistuo. But what does he believe? Does he believe the report of Mary, you know, that someone has stolen the body? No, of course not. He believes, the Greek is pistuo. it means to believe or have faith in or, or trust in. He trusts in the resurrection that Jesus has risen from the dead. Because the tomb is empty and a shred of evidence left behind testifies not merely to the fact that the tomb is empty, but the emptiness bears witness to the fact that Jesus has met and fought and beaten the king of death. Verses 8 through 10. Then the disciple who had reached the tomb first also went in. And he saw and believed, for until then, they still hadn't understood the scriptures. Isaiah 53, Psalm 16, Jonah 1, Hosea 6, that said Jesus must rise from the dead. Implied, now they do. Now they believe. And in verse 10, it says, then they went home. Because what do you do after experiencing something like that? Their heart rates need to slow down. Their jaws need closure. And they probably need a new pair of drawers. Because, oh, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Oh, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. That just happened. That just happened. The impossible, the unimaginable. I said Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego just for... Okay, you got that back there. The unimaginable happened. The inconceivable happened right before their very eyes. C.S. Lewis writes, The New Testament writers speak as if Christ's achievement in rising from the dead was the first event of its kind in the whole history of the universe. He is the first fruits, the pioneer of life. He has forced open a door that has been locked since the death of the first human he has met, fought, and beaten the king of death. Everything is different because he has done so. This is the beginning of the new creation. A new chapter in cosmic history has been opened. And to experience that, you probably need a new pair of drawers. But you know, you know this isn't what we've gone through is not. This is not a resurrection appearance. This is not a resurrection appearance. This isn't a a resurrection encounter. This isn't an experience of the risen Jesus and all his glory and newness. This is merely a story about an empty tomb and a shred of evidence left behind. We haven't come to the rest yet. But the shock In awe and wonder of the empty tomb, it awakens and produces and confirms something inside of the beloved disciple. Pistuo. Belief, faith, and trust. And in us, we who have far more than an empty tomb and a shred of evidence, how much more belief and faith and trust can be awakened and produced and confirmed in us. And I don't know where you're at tonight. I don't know if you need that faith and trust and belief to be awakened, that things have just gotten boring and old and routine. Or maybe you need that faith and belief and trust produced for the first time. Or maybe you just need it confirmed. We have all the evidence in the world right here. How do you know that you believe what you believe? I think that's something that we all need to grapple with. We all need to understand that it's not built on our aspirations or our abilities or our achievements. It's based on the work of Jesus on the cross. But let's not forget about the tomb. I've said it before and I'll I'll keep saying it again. That I see people all the time wearing the crosses around their neck. You even see some crosses with Jesus still on it. I'm like, what? He's still on the cross? He came down from the cross the day of. We talked about that last week. Joseph of Arimathea and the Nicodemus, they put him in the tomb, saying that he's not on the cross anymore. And I think that theology says something that is something we don't see in scripture. Jesus is not on the cross and he's not in the tomb either. So I think in, in unison, if we're gonna, if we're gonna wear to wear emblems of the cross as reminders of what Jesus has done for us we also need to wear that in conjunction with an empty tomb to realize that death has been emptied of its power because of the death of Jesus but because of the resurrection too may we have that hope in our lives that you you don't have to deal with that fear and anxiety as you leave this place tonight you don't have to deal with that failure you're not a failure you're a child of God washed and saved by the blood of Jesus. You guys are awesome, you know? So let's continue this walk of faith. Let's continue this discipleship, though it might be hard and though we may not like the people that we have to interact with or to cross our paths, let us remember that Jesus, we we may not have been so nice before. I'll tell you one last thing tonight. Uh, uh, earlier today we had uh, three uh, police cruisers out front and uh, before church even started and there was a gentleman here who keeps for the past two months he's been coming here and it was uh, news to me that for the past two months he's been breaking out of a convalescent home across the street to come here (laughs) and worship And the police had to take him back because he wasn't allowed out or something. It was against their their rules and policies or I don't know. But but what if we had that mentality? Like, you guys are the cream of the crop. You're here on Wednesday nights. But get someone else to come with you too. You know, I'm not saying we need to fill every seat. But we need to fill every seat. Not because we're going to take an offering. But because there's like 60,000 people in Camarillo. And how many of them know Jesus? Let's do our best to invite the people. And to do our best, not just to get here, but to be the church. To break out of whatever might be holding us back, whether it's a convalescent home or a jail sale. Or our own heads and our own fear and anxiety. Would you pray with me? Jesus, we thank you that you have overcome death. That you have risen from the grave. You have done the unimaginable. You have opened up a door that has been locked since the beginning, it seems. Thank you for this new chapter that we have been invited into and we get to partake in. Help us to do more, to bring that and open that up in the lives of this community, the homes and the relationships and the schools and workplaces that we find ourselves in. I thank you for this people. I thank you for this generous group of people whose hearts are are ready to, to go and burst with love for you and for people. We love you, Jesus, and it's in your name we pray. Amen.